let's just center our hearts kind of back on the Lord just for a moment. If you would, just close your eyes. Just thank you, God, for your presence and for your nearness. Just thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are always pointing us towards Jesus. And we just thank you, Abba, God, that you are a God who encounters us and that you love us so much that you even came to live inside us. And so we just focus our heart again on you, Lord, as we hear the word and become changed by the word of God. And so, God, we just... We give you our worship yet again, one more time. We just offer to you our love. We give you love and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been, as you know, talking about um, obstacles to worship. Um, we've been talking about, if you're new today, you haven't been around encourage you to go to our website, myncwc.com. You can go to our messages, and um, the series is called Worship, the Battle for Our Souls. And um, we've been talking about worship, and we've been talking about how, you know, God is a tangible God. He's a, a present God, and I'm not going to reteach all of that. Um, but we've been talking about how sometimes in our lives and in our church, there's um, a dryness, there's a sense that, oh, wow, what's going on? I don't feel his presence like I want to. And um, we, we, we know the enemy is out there, and he is resisting us, and he is fighting against us, and he doesn't want us encountering uh, the Lord. He doesn't want us encountering, but, but there's a lot of stuff that we actually carry as people that actually the enemy doesn't need to interfere. <laughs> we, we've got some stuff. And so, so today I want to share uh, another obstacle um, that could possibly be keeping us from experiencing the tangible presence of God. And again, as I've mentioned before throughout this series of messages, I want us to be very clear, God doesn't leave us. Okay? He doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us. We can clearly read that in, in um, Joshua chapter 1 and verse 5. God is always with us. Always. And if you have um, trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then God actually lives inside you. But as Christians, we are a people who, um, you know, have a God who can be felt and he can be experienced and he wants to be experienced. And we can feel his presence whether we're at home, whether we're at work, whether we're at school or even Sunday morning at church, right? And if you want to, again, a scriptural basis for that, I encourage you to go to our website. I'm not going to reteach all of that. I'm not even going to recap it. Just listen to those first few messages in that series to kind of, you know, hear the biblical foundation that God is a God who encounters his people. 
But I am going to say this again. We need the presence of God in our lives. Say, I need the presence of God in my life. Just like fish need water and humans need air and just like you know, a child needs a hug from a parent, we need the presence of God in our lives. And since it is wired into our DNA, the very DNA that you are made of that evolution says came from an amoeba, when God created you, he hardwired into your DNA a need, a craving for him. And so we've got to get the obstacles out of the way because it's messing it up sometimes. Right? Are you human? Unfortunately, we still are. I've still got this flesh bag that's holding it all together. Darn it. I'm looking forward to the day of a glorified body. So today, I want to look at the obstacle of ingratitude. Ingratitude. Ingratitude is the absence of due thankfulness. And I promise you, I didn't time it so that it would show up on Thanksgiving week. Seriously, like literally when I thought of when, when this series was kind of percolating in my heart, thankfulness was the first obstacle that actually was in my heart way back in September. But the order that we did it, here we are. And so the obstacle of ingratitude, and the Bible has a lot to say about it. In fact, ingratitude is actually, according to the Bible, one of the major indicators of the times that we're living in. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says this, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. Ingratitude, ungrateful, same thing. The absence of thankfulness. Now, this passage goes on if you want to read all the other problems that will be in the last days. But the point I want us to see is that ingratitude is an earmark of the last days. And we really don't have to look very hard to find sweeping ingratitude across our nation. I mean, I watch as our forefathers are stripped of their honor and significance in founding this great nation. The loudest voices in society no longer look with grateful hearts upon those who suffered and died to make us one nation under God. The spirit of entitlement has turned teachers and military and clergy and, and any kind of service industry profession has, has turned them into slaves to their every want and need instead of 
treating them as honorable men and women who work hard and who sacrifice their own lives to help someone else. You know, as the face puke generation of selfies and me-centered sharing, um, we rarely thank anyone but ourselves for most of our greatness. You know, we've got Google, and Google has, has become the purveyor of all wisdom and truth. While we ignore and dismiss the real wisdom of aged uh, men and women who have actually already gone ahead and cleared the path. You know, we're the, we have the, the self-esteem, self-worth, self-love generation. And the self-esteem, self-worth, self-love generation has injected their ego with crack and have created a monster that feeds on praise without ever giving it to someone else. But then the tables get turned on us and, you know, we, we, we go and we work hard at school or, you know, we work hard in our home or, you know, our efforts at work, they, they all the hard work, it, it goes unappreciated, unrecognized. And then we wonder why no one thanks us for, you know, staying late at the job or staying home on the weekend to study. We find ourselves reaping what we've sown, and it feels terrible. And no one is thanking us because we are thanking no one. You know, I came across this story um, while I was preparing this message. I thought it painted an accurate picture of what I'm talking about. And it's this. Many years ago, a boat was wrecked in a storm on Lake Michigan at Evanston, Illinois. And students from Northwestern University formed themselves into rescue teams. One student, Edward Spencer saved 17 people from the sinking ship. And when he was carried exhausted to his room, he asked, did I do my best? Do you think I did my best? And years later, R.A. Torrey was talking about this incident in a meeting in Los Angeles. And a man in the audience called out that Edward Spencer was actually present. And so Dr. Torrey invited Spencer to the platform an old man with white hair slowly climbed the steps as the applause rang. And Dr. Torrey asked him if anything in particular stood out in his memory. Only this, sir, he replied. Of the 17 people I saved, not one of them thanked me. You know, I imagine Jesus probably felt the same way. When we read in Luke chapter 17, verse 11, it says, On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. 
And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Chances are that if we are ungrateful with others, we're probably being ungrateful with God. You know, and as weak humans, I think we tend to forget the glorious value of God in our lives. You know, Isaiah 17, verse 10 says, For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, Though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee in a day of grief and incurable pain. Now what we've got here is the prophet Isaiah is painting this picture of what it's like when God begins to move to the background of our lives. Whenever we start to feel like my soul is drying up and things are not going the way I want them, we might have to start to look and see, is God in the background of my life? Where is he? We might have to face the fact that maybe things are the way they are because I've been very ungrateful with God. And he has, not be, he has not been the center of my affection. You know, the reality of being ungrateful is it's a part of our fallen human nature. It just is. In fact, Paul describes, you know, the thinking that we all had before we trusted in Jesus. Maybe you don't remember, but I'll remind us. Romans chapter 1 and verse 19 for what can be known about God is plain to them. Now he's talking about everybody, the people of the world. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made. He's talking about creation, stars, trees, plants, rocks. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's where we were. 
It's a part of human nature to go, wow, it's obvious there's a God, but no thanks. Don't care, don't want to care, don't want to know. Now, the old sinful nature that was put to death when we said yes to Jesus being Lord, that, that old part of us is that part that wants to keep creeping back. Even though I'm saved and I'm born again and I'm set free, that part of my life still wants to keep coming up out of the grave and keep me ungrateful. So what does this have to do with worship and the presence of God, right? Where are you going, Tom? I, I feel terrible. Help me. <laughs> me too. We're all in this together. Well, here's what this has to do with, with worship. Let's look at Psalm 100, verse 4. It's one quick but simple and to the point. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. So here it is. This is the, the Lynch passage for the day. This scripture is telling us that the door to the presence of God is thanksgiving. Everybody say that with me. The presence of God, the door to the presence of God is thanksgiving. I didn't make it up. It's right there, black and white. For us to enter into God's space, we must go through the door or the gates of thanksgiving. I love what Chris Valentin says. He says, thankfulness is the door to happiness and the gate to heaven. It is the cure for arrogance, the inoculation for depression, and it's a force against the spirit of entitlement. How did he know what I was going to say? <laughs> thankfulness is, is fruit of humility and the offspring of gratitude towards God. Thankfulness has saved many marriages, rescued children from the grips of bitterness, and delivered countless souls from the political spirit. Thankfulness is a field that must be cultivated, weeded, and seeded. Farm on. You know, time and time again in my own life, when I don't feel God and I feel maybe I feel dry in my soul and worship and I'm, I am not experiencing the presence of God, you know, so many times I can link it right back to my little entitled heart where I've been like, no, God, you're not that good. Not to me, at least. You know, here's the thinking that I think is it's subconsciously it's working on us, okay? I don't think we have, maybe, maybe we do sometimes, maybe. I'm pretty dark sometimes. I can have this thought out loud, I guess. <laughs> but this, <laughs> I'll, I'll own it as an out loud thought. For the rest of you, it's probably subconscious, okay? <laughs> but here's the thought. Here's the thought, okay? Why should I thank God 
It's mostly me doing all the work. God's not really doing much for me. Now, I don't think it's a conscious thought because that's just stupid. But I think it's down in there sometimes. I don't feel like praising. God ain't done much for me this week. It's been a bad week. My life's hard. He's not helping. I'm doing all the work. I'm the one that gets up and goes to work and hardly earns any money and has no friends and whatever. Right? I mean, it, it, and it's eroding our, our, our gratitude. It's eroding our, our praise and our thanksgiving to God. Because I'm doing all the heavy lifting, not you. You know, the more we strive with self-effort, the less we will worship God. It's a fact. And worse still, because we live a gospel of self-effort, you know, with me and all my hard work and my commitment at the center rather than Christ. It never, ever leads me to true adoration, only to self-righteousness. It spawns pride, not worship. You know, I never go through the, the door of thanksgiving, so I don't experience His presence. Where are you? I don't know. You've been doing it all alone for so long. Can we say ouch? I mean, how is it that Jesus would love me like he, like I was one of those ten lepers? And yet I could still fall into acting like one of the nine who never thanked him. I mean, I don't know about you. I Actually, I do, because we're all the same. Jesus healed me of my spiritual leprosy. I was a diseased pus bag of blood. That's right. That's gross. That's our soul, people. You're just a big pus bag waiting to be popped. Ooh, get some of that. But seriously, we are all spiritual lepers. Unlovable, untouchable, really, ultimately. And he made me clean. Amen. Jesus made me clean. He made me a brand new kind of human being. And still, I prefer to depend on my self-effort. I still enjoy my self-righteousness. And then... <laughs> And then I've got the nerve to blame God when things don't go right in my life. I've been working so hard, you're not helping. I know, because you're doing it wrong, and I'm not going to help you do it wrong. Ungratefulness is treacherous, and it keeps me from experiencing the presence of God. And so as I realize what's going on in my heart, you know, I'm learning that there are some signs and there's some, some symptoms that start to, you know, they can make me aware that I'm, I'm actually living ungrateful. And so I'm going to share a few of those with you. And obviously the first one is the one we've kind of already been talking about. It's this, you know, 
It's the lack of presence of God in my life. That's, that's the first thing that kind of hopefully is like a flashing red light on your console. Where are you, God? Well, I'm where I've always been. Come on in through the door. You know? That's the easiest symptom to, 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 to figure out that something's wrong. When life, when I, when I begin to feel dry in my spirit and I feel disconnected from God and I start to, I look at my heart and, and I see if I've been ungrateful to him or others. You know, remember how, you know, how we love God, you know, it affects how we love each other. Right? And how we love each other, guess what? It's affecting how we love God. Now, I, not every time that I feel distant from God is because I'm ungrateful, okay? As I've shared throughout this whole series, you know, there are other obstacles that um, keep us from experiencing that tangible presence of God. So, so I begin to kind of examine my heart, and, and I'm looking, is there pride there, right? That's a hindrance, isn't it? God, resist proudness. Is there pride in my heart? Am I disobeying? Am I not, you know, admitting my wrongs? Is there anger? Remember that one. That's, that keeps God away. We don't feel that presence. Or is it ingratitude that's in my heart? Another symptom of ingratitude is exactly, exactly what Eric's been talking about for the last few weeks. Criticalness. Criticalness is the fertilizer for ingratitude to grow. I mean, if you think about it, the very opposite attitude of thankfulness is being critical. Right? I mean, it's, it's almost nearly impossible for me to have my heart filled with thanksgiving while at the same time, same time pointing out every flaw. It's really difficult. James chapter 5, verse 9, it says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door, the real one. Galatians 5.15 But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And Romans 14, verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Not word judgment is an interesting word because it doesn't just mean, you know, you terrible person. I condemn you. You know, it's not just the hard stuff. Actually, the word means to evaluate, to scrutinize to express an opinion about. And it means to condemn. 
So our, our criticism of each other is a clear indication that we are suffering from ingratitude. And not just with each other, what about our criticism of God? You know, Chuck Pierce and Robert Heidler in their book, Restoring Your Shield of Faith, lists four major dangers with complaining and criticism. I'm just going to list them for you. Number one, complaining and criticism cuts off our vision for the future. Complaining and criticism cuts off our vision for the future. And when you think about it, Jesus did not murmur or complain when he was on the cross. Why? Because his eyes were fixed on the outcome. Hebrews 12 says what? Verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated as the, at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, here's the deal. We, we will not, you know, we won't complain in the wilderness if our eyes are on the promised land. You see, our problem is that Satan tells us that there's no way out of the wilderness. You're not coming out. Satan tells us you will die in the wilderness. There's no way out. While God is saying, follow me. I have promised land for you. And, and so, guess what? We have a choice. We get to choose who we will agree with. When we're critical, we're agreeing with the devil that our future is cut off. Say, that hurts. Yes. Number two. Complaining... And criticism is dangerous because it causes us to doubt God's goodness for the present. Complaining and criticism is dangerous because it causes us to doubt God's goodness for the present. So, when we're complaining, what we're saying is, God... I don't like the route that you've mapped out for my life. I mean, that's what it, Romans 8, 28 teaches us. It tells us that, that God has a route planned for us. And all of the things on the route, even those that are not fun, they're designed by God to work together for our good. Say, God's plan, God's plan. is for my good. And when we complain, what we're saying is, God, I don't like this route. I don't like how you're taking me. I don't think you're doing a good job. I mean, murmuring is an accusation against God that his plan for us is not a good plan. 
Number three, complaining and criticism causes unbelief to deepen and grow. Complaining and criticism causes unbelief to deepen and grow. And that is because unbelief is like a seed. If you water it, guess what? It grows. Every time we complain, we are watering our unbelief. Right? Isn't that what Eric was saying? We have a problem with unbelief. What happens when you are underwater and you even, you know, you open your mouth wide? Water comes in, right? Yeah. Well, in the same way, when we open our mouth to complain, unbelief floods in. If we're having a hard time walking in faith and we open our mouth to complain, we have just lost the battle. Because we've opened ourselves now up to this flood of unbelief. So sometimes the best thing we can do is just shut up. Just stop talking. Just stop talking. Number four. Complaining and criticism invites greater adversity. Complaining and criticism invites greater adversity. And some of us, we've gotten into a cycle that just gets worse and worse. You know, when we're having a problem with someone and we complain, what happens? We get more adversity, don't we? Does it fix the problem? Anybody ever complain their problem away? Just show of hands. I really want to do a case study of you and your life. Just, just let me know. Send me an email, whatever. No, you create more problems. You, have, you invite more adversity in your life. You know, murmuring, actually, it puts us under a curse. Did you know that? Murmuring puts us under a curse. And let's look at the scripture, you know. So what was Israel's complaint in the wilderness? The Jew, well, they said the main one was, we're going to die out here. Right? That was not God's plan. He had promised to get them to the promised land. That was the plan. Clearly said it. Going to take you. They kept going, nope, we're going to die. He said, nope, you're going in. Nope, we're going to die. Well, here we go. Numbers 14, verse 27. How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? Huh. I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord. Now, this is a promise he keeps. What you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Wow. So what's he saying here? 
What's God saying? What's, the, what's, he, what's he trying to communicate here? He's saying this. He said, you have refused to come in agreement with my words over your life. So instead, I'm coming into agreement with your words. You have refused to come into agreement with what I have said about your life. So instead, I'm now coming into agreement with yours. You're dead. We have to be careful about what we say. Critical, complaining words are a clear sign of ingratitude. Another symptom I talked about a few weeks ago. Another symptom of ingratitude is self-pity. You know, as you may remember a few weeks ago, I shared about when I was having my own pity party. And I was complaining to God about how my dreams haven't come true, you know. And I was with a few subtle jabs that he wasn't taking very good care of me. We've all been there, right? Yeah. We've all wallowed in the mud and cried, woe is me. My life's so much harder than everyone else's. (laughs) You know, David, King David, actually, he had some pity parties, too. Psalm 73, verse 13, he said, Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long, and every morning brings me pain. (laughs) Well, someone didn't have a right perspective. You had an adulterous affair. You killed a guy. I don't think that's innocence. But, you know, it's all perspective, right? Psalm 77 in verse 7, he says this, he says, Has the Lord rejected me forever? Will he never again be kind to me? Is his unfailing love gone forever? Have his promises permanently failed? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he slammed the door on his compassion? (laughs) Ah! (laughs) That's right, call the wambulance. Listen, you're laughing, but who else has had a day like that, right? Come on. We have them, you know. I mean, let's, it, it, I mean, seriously, again, this is an indicator of, our, of, our gener- of the times we're in, right? I mean, think about all the self-pity posts you see on social media. So put up the slide. This is the one that makes me cringe the most. I, well, you better delete it because this is, this is the one. When you have a good heart, you help too much, you trust too much, you give too much, you love too much, and it always seems like you're the one who gets hurt the most. Oh, everybody, the one tear. Ah! <laughs> oh. And every version of it. I mean, there's just a hundred versions of you know, I'm, I'm guilty of loving too much. Those are my sins. I'm just, I'm just too, I'm too helpful. I don't know how to not be taken advantage of. Will someone love me out there in face puke world? Will you shower me with adulation and praise? Because I am a martyr for our generation. Yes. 
You know, self-pity and pity parties, as we like to call them, you know, are usually rooted in anger against God. And self-pity is sin because it's self-righteousness. Instead of being thankful that God has a plan for lives and that he will, you know, he's going to get us to our promised land, we, we sulk. We accuse God for not caring enough to help us out. We love self-pity because it conveniently gives us an excuse to avoid responsibility for our own lives. I'm going to say that one again. Self-pity, instead of being thankful, God has a plan, gives us permission to not take responsibility for my own life. Self-pity is it's like cancer. And it, you know, that eats at our life, our Christian life in God. And so we've got to We've got to understand, we've got to see it, we've got to recognize it for, for what it really is. It's a perverted form of self-love. You know, remember what I, I stated earlier about becoming, you know, uh, we have a generation of me-centered self-love, right? Self-pity is, is literally, it's opening the door to an even bigger problem. That has been developing over recent years. Because what's happening is self-pity is giving rise to the glorification of victimhood. And here's what I mean. Our culture is increasingly celebrating the state of being a victim. Instead of... Um, you know, people who, who, you know, actually, you know, do courageous acts instead of calling them heroes. We look to the victims in our society and we call them the true heroes. In fact, I was reading an article about how youth um, are creating false social media accounts and then bullying themselves in order to receive comfort and attention from friends. I'm not lying. They are creating, I've got my face puke profile, and then I create one called, you know, Joe Doe. And I get on my, mine with Joe Doe, and I start saying terrible stuff about myself. I bully myself with this fake account so that people will come to my rush to my aid. Well, that doesn't happen in our self-pity generation, Sean, because victims are heroes. Now, don't get me wrong. Listen, do not get me wrong. I know there are real victims in the world, okay? And everyone in this room has probably been a real victim of some kind of abuse or neglect or false accusation. But for us as Christians, God lives inside of us. But for us to keep sulking and wallowing in our victimhood when we have a God who can heal every broken heart, that is ingratitude. 
And we have to repent. So how do we start to change our hearts? How do we live in thanksgiving? How do we live going through the door or the gate into the presence of God? Let's look at that scripture back in Psalm 100 again. Verse 4 said this, right? Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Now, why should we do this? Well, the answer is in verse 5. Verse 5 says this. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Everyone say, the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. We are to thank God because He is good to us and His love is constantly enduring. We have so many daily blessings from God that we have become oblivious to His constant goodness in our life. We become spoiled brats because He's so good all the time, lavishing, helping, sustaining, loving, mercying us, whatever. We've become oblivious to it. It's like, oh yeah, I live in a house. I mean, think of I, when I complain about the size of my house, I forget that I have a house at all, right? You know, when I complain about my income, I forget that people who earn, you know, $10,000 a year are in the top 16% of the world's wealthiest people. The world. Just making $10,000 a year. And if you earn 50000 a year, you're in the top 1% of the world's wealthiest people. Everything in my life is an opportunity for me to look at it and either say, wow, thank you, God, for all your faithfulness in my life, or I can look at it and I don't, you know, I can say, wow, you haven't done a very good job taking care of me. You know, when I was having my pity party a few weeks ago, I was imagining how wonderful it would be to have all my dreams come true. And I was also imagining, because that thought made me happy, I was imagining how much joy and praise and thanksgiving would be in my heart for God. And that's when the Holy Spirit stepped in and he said, why don't you praise him like all your dreams just came true? Wow, that was a paradigm shift. But then the Holy Spirit stepped in again. And he reminded me about my two oldest boys that went to a youth conference recently with some friends from another church. And as I remembered because um, we saw pictures and videos of, you know, the event. And as, I, as I'm remembering in my mind these pictures and these videos of my boys worshiping and praising God, my eyes filled with tears. 
and my heart filled with thanksgiving. Because one of my constant prayers for all of my boys is that they would have a heart to know God and that they would encounter God in new and powerful ways. And the Holy Spirit reminded me that he answered that prayer in part at that conference. And when he reminded me, I poured out my thanksgiving. I thanked him. I thanked him for encountering my two sons. If we will just look for the goodness of God the love of God, the faithfulness of God, if we will look for those things, we will have something to thank Him for. What about people? Thanksgiving with people is just as important as Thanksgiving with God. You know, we can't expect the presence of God to be evident in our life if we think we can thank God and then live critical of everyone else. Our worship to God is connected to our love of people. So how do we do this with people? Let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Paul had ample reason to thank God on behalf of this church. And his thanksgiving was continuous. See, it was right for him to give thanks because these believers were cause for thanksgiving. In fact, you know, Paul felt obligated to give thanks like it was like a debt. Like, I, I owe this. I have to give this, which he paid enthusiastically. So what was it that gave Paul the compulsion to give God thanks? Well, he tells us it was their faith and their love. Their faith had continued to grow, which should be reminding us, by the way, that as Christians, our faith is supposed to what? Grow. Everybody say it out loud. Grow. Keep growing. The faith of Christians should keep growing in all of our lives. We should be trusting God more consistently and more extensively as we get older in Christ. Faith in God is not a stale thing. It's, and it's because it's a trust in a person. Right? And so it's either increasing or it's decreasing. And a growing faith indicates that we are growing Christians. And not only so, so not only were these, you know, the Thessalonians' relationship with God developing when it comes to faith, their relationship with each other was developing. 
See, genuine faith always is accompanied by love for others. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now think of it like this. Faith is the root. Love is the fruit. Say that with me. Faith is the root. Love is the fruit. And so the Thessalonians' love for each other, it was increasing. It kept increasing. Now, if we were to read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, you know, we, had, we would read that Paul was expressing concern that their love would increase. Like in that letter, he's like, I, it's my concern, I hope you will grow in love. And now, happily, he said, guess what? It is. I can see it. Both faith and love were growing like well-fertilized plants. This was an exceptional church. But what was Paul doing? He was looking for the good that was happening among his fellow Christians. That's how we do Thanksgiving when we're with other people. I mean, do you think there were no problems at Thessalonica? course there were problems every church has problems but if you read down to chapter 3 you'll see Paul actually telling the church about a problem go down to chapter 3 he says quit being lazy quit being idle do something get a job that's what he says and, and then he goes on to say if you won't if you're lazy and you don't get a job, you don't eat. I mean, he's, he's talking about problems. It's not like they're perfect. But Paul was looking at what was growing and maturing. You know, if you're like me, it's easy to forget what God has done. For me and others, you know, where we all came from before Jesus. You know, the other day I was meeting with a, a friend that I deeply love, and we were discussing all of the hell and pain and suffering they went through before Jesus. We talked about how God had saved and healed and delivered them from so much darkness. And it was a moment that caused me to thank God again for saving my friend and for the amazing salvation that he has provided for me as well. I know there's a lot of immaturity in all of us. 
But if we can follow Paul's example and look for the good that is happening in others, then guess what? We will find the strength to offer thanksgiving to God and enter into his gates with praise. If you find yourself critical of someone, ask God to show you how he sees them. Or better yet, go to that person and ask them about their testimony. Listen to their story and allow it to cause thanksgiving to erupt in your heart towards God. Can you say amen? amen. Let's pray. Father, we just, I want to repent, God, for my ingratitude, my critical spirit, my self-pity. God, I ask you, God, right now to just cleanse my heart of those things. Just forgive me, God, for wallowing and sulking in my own perceived problem. I ask that, God, you would just, again, sprinkle the blood of Jesus over my heart. Just sprinkle me again and just wash me. Just erase it, God. Just take it off of the, the accounting records. In Jesus' name, I pray that, God, for all of us today. Just wipe our, our, our slates clean, God. And Father, I just I, I ask that now that you would bathe us and birth in us the spirit of thanksgiving. Hearts that are full of praise because your faithfulness and your love and your goodness endures forever towards us. God, bathe us and birth in us thanksgiving for others, God. Help us to see with your eyes the heart of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us, God, to eradicate the critical, judgmental eye and replace it with the eyes of light. That we would see with your eyes each other, God. I pray today, God, that you would do that for us. She would awaken gratitude and thanksgiving deep within our hearts, God. That we would be a people who come into your presence every day. We would start our day with thanks, God. Thank you for waking me up. Thank you for more breath. Thank you for my life. Praise you, Abba. I ask, God, that you bathe this congregation in thanksgiving. That we would be a grateful people, God. Grateful to you and grateful to others. Forgive us of sinning against one another, God, with ingratitude. Help us today, God, to be a people who say thank you.
I know we're in the season of thankfulness, and this is the week of thanking you, God, for lots of food. But God, we really want to say thank you for our nation. Thank you for those who came and pioneered the way. Thank you for for the, the love of family and friends. Thank you for the love of your family, God, that you put me in. You said, come be a part of my family and have thanksgiving with me. Have thanksgiving with me. And so we honor you today. We honor you this week, God. As we get with those who maybe rub us the wrong, we are going to look for the good. We're going to look for that which is amazing. We're going to look for that which is growing and maturing. Not perfected, but growing and maturing. So we thank you, God, for your presence. We thank you for your word. Thank you that, God, you are a God who's saying, remove every stumbling block out of your way, my people, and come into my presence. So today we lift our hearts in love to you one more time. We say thank you, God. Thank you for our church family. Thank you for our natural families. Thank you for our spiritual family. Thank you for making me a son and adopting me to the richest family in the universe. We give you love today, God, and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.